Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with first team sports scientist at Everton Football Club, Matt Taberner. Thanks for tuning in to episode 150 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So after many months, many months of stalking Matt, I managed to get him on on the podcast to chat about his work at Everton Football Club. So we get into lots of detail with regards to the monitoring side of things, which is a big interest of Matt's, as well as the uh, return to play stuff that he's, uh, again, really interested in. Uh, And I think an area that um, he's doing more and more work in uh, in his role at Everton. So it's been a common theme over the last couple of weeks, getting strength, uh, strength coaches on and sports scientists on who are highly involved in the return to play process. So I'm hoping this just adds another layer of information that's out there with regards to that process, um, the kind of communication involved among staff, um, the kind of benchmarks that are set by these guys for certain injuries. Um, so hopefully, like I said, that this adds another, another layer to what is going on out there in the field. Looking at the data, I think it's important to obviously look at most of the information relative to that player. Obviously, rather than looking at the data as absolute numbers, it's important to see, well, where does the player play? What does he normally do in relation to his match workload? And how can we express that in a form that the coach can actually understand? But just before we get into the episode with Matt, just want to say a massive thanks to Val Performance, makers of the Nordboard and Groin Bar, for sponsoring this episode today. And also, massive thanks to Fatigue Science, uh, makers of the Ready Band, for also sponsoring this episode today. So if you want to check out uh, both them, both them guys who've been massively helpful to the uh, creation and continuation of the podcast, you can uh, find them at valdperformance.com and fatiguescience.com. So over to the episode with Matt. Hope you enjoy and I'll speak to you soon. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So delighted tonight to have a chance to speak to Matt Taberner, who's the sports scientist slash SNC coach at Everton Football Club. So welcome to the podcast, Matt. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me on. Um, looking forward to having a chat about a few things and uh, cracking on with the conversation. Cool. It's good to have you, mate. So anyone that doesn't know who you are, just want to give us a little bit of background on yourself, uh, previous clubs you've been at and what you're currently doing. Yeah, brief background. Um, I think... Underpinning it, I did a BSc in sports science, graduated from the University of Northampton, and then went on to do um, a master's degree in sports and exercise nutrition at Loughborough. And then moving on from that, I was lucky enough to get a position working at Aston Villa Football Club in the start of season, I think it was about 2017. Uh, Continued to do some of the qualifications while I was there, did my FA Fitness Trainers Award, did my NSCA CSCS and obviously worked in a capacity with the academy for around six years, uh, touching some of the stuff with the obviously the, the uh, reserve team and the first team at the time. And then I was given the opportunity to move on to Everton uh, in 2013, um, just when Roberto Martinez started, um, was brought in by Steve Tashin, who's now Columbus Crew. Um, and that's where I remain. That's when Steve left to take up his position of the head of sports science, and now I'm in a position where I'm still at Everton acting as a 
sports science SNC coach, um, mainly the uh, remit uh, for rehabilitation. Nice. So obviously, Steve Tash been a, a previous podcaster, two podcasts actually. He got out of uh, got out of me. So what was what was Steve like to work with? Yeah, Steve was she was great to work with. Uh, obviously, you've been mentored under Gary Gray and learning different areas. Working under a sports scientist coming from a different country uh, it was great to get some different perspectives and uh, see how things were done uh, coming from a different area. Uh, so it was a really good experience, and obviously, a great guy as well. Great to have some conversations and uh, discuss different ideas and things that potentially would work, what wouldn't work. So it was a, it was a good balance. And then obviously Steve left to go back to Columbus Crew and uh, I was left to sort of take over his mantle. Nice. So you've just been out to the States. What what um, what caught your attention over there? What's been done? Um, I got asked to... Um, anything potentially to bring back? Yeah, it was very interesting. I got asked to present uh, over at the um, New York Red Bulls Sports Science Symposium by Tony Giro. And uh, obviously while I was over there, I thought it's a great opportunity to get a great some learning experience, see if we can take anything back um, back to the Premier League. Um, I managed to get an opportunity to go to the uh, New York Jets and obviously into the Brooklyn Nets with Damien and it was, it was a great experience, um, particularly the NBA, some of the facilities um, and then obviously some of the things that they're doing in terms of their performance team, uh, good structure in place and obviously a good workflow between the, within, within the, in the building and and obviously, I think the workflow and the way they do things and having a good structure between the sort of the, uh, the physiotherapy team before the, the sports science team and the uh, strength and conditioning coaches is, is, is an important component of making a practice work. Mm-hmm. So what's it, what's it been like from working with the academy at Villa? To then stepping up to first team at Everton was that was that quite a big jump or was that always the kind of natural progression what you wanted to do? I mean, I think obviously I've been at Villa for six years and I'd obviously worked under quite a few management management regimes under that time and obviously I'd, I'd always done a little bits of work with the um, with the reserves teams and the first team while I was there because I was based within the the first team sports science office there for the majority of my time so I always have a good um, rapport with the the first team sports science staff and always obviously see what was going on and uh, get involved with things. So it wasn't wasn't really a big jump going obviously to work with the first team at Everton. It was more of a challenge. I've been here for six years. I want to go and experience a different culture of uh, a different club uh, and obviously uh, see how I can develop my career and see if I can take things on to the next level. Mm-hmm. So one thing that you're kind of, um, I suppose you're, you're known for really, is the kind of monitoring side of things. So do you just want to talk to us a little bit about the structure that you've got at Everton with regards to the monitoring that's, that's going yeah, on? I think so. I think there's a lot of uh, research currently in the area of uh, monitoring and I think like it's always important to realise what are we actually monitoring and what do we know? Like we do, We've all got a monitor. We've got to monitor certain GPS metrics. We've got to monitor internal train load. But why do we monitor that? I think obviously the Australians leading the way with some of the research, especially Tim Garrett's research group. Um, I mean, I think it's clear to show, I mean, some of the work that's been done. I mean, a good example is one of the papers by Colbert. I mean, it showed some great relationships between some work with the accelerometer and GPS running loads and injury risks. So automatically showed there is some kind of relationship between workloads and injury. And I think some of the stuff coming out even further now is showing a great relationship between some of the specific 
types of workload, so week-to-week variations and collaborative workloads over a period of time is showing a, a great um, sort of benefit of monitoring. And then obviously even more so, I mean, linking in with the sort of the um, Australian hamstring group is obviously specific types of workload, but in specifically we're interested in the sort of the high speed running and the sprint components and the injury risk that's associated with these. And I think I think I mentioned another paper that was done by Chris Barnes a few years ago looking at the demands of the Premier League. It showed that total distances have been relatively staying the same and it's the high intensity contributions that are going up. Um, so obviously that's where if they're going up then we need to look at conditioning our players uh, for these demands of the game what are changing uh, obviously it's getting more intense in nature and then we have to look at developing physical qualities to, to meet those demands the, the players what you expose them to external workloads they, they'll, they'll respond and adapt to those workloads that they're exposed to I think there's a recent, really good recent paper by Shane Malone, I think with Adam Owen at Benfica, that they showed that certain exposures to high-speed running and sprinting over time, where it's progressively uh, overloaded and uh, over time can actually help reduce injury risk. Um, and, and then obviously that's, that's, that creates sort of a, a paradox, and I think Tim does a great, Tim Gavitt does a great thing in terms of discovering like, the risk between training and injury, like where are we, what's the optimal balance between the two, and I think that's where the discussion of where some of the acute and chronic workloads and in relation to that, and obviously what we need to take into account that I think a lot of people fail to do, that it's a great concept and it's a movement forward for the way we monitor training loads, but I think Tim, if you read his paper specifically, makes like that's in Australian rules football, it's not specifically in soccer, so we need to take that maybe with a little bit of pinch of salt and see how that works with in the, the club we work at. Doesn't mean it's going to pick up an injury in the club we work at, depending on the way the club trains. Um, so, there's, but there's some important points to take from that. Um, so, in, sorry, yeah, sorry, right. so, 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 in I terms have a of tendency to go on a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, mate. Don't worry, mate. So, in terms of uh, Tim Gabbert's work, and you say that obviously things uh, are coming from a um, an Aussie rules perspective. So, what could what can practitioners um, manipulate in them from from his work to actually in foot to to work I mean, in I football? Think, so, what can I think, have to be careful? Yeah, yeah. So, I think obviously the original research was actually taken from uh, RPE data rather than the specific external workload data. So I think it's a case of obviously taking a great concept that, that Tim has produced and obviously starting to look at to see if any patterns exist, whether it be a, um, a one to two week workload ratio, a one to three, a one to four, one to five, depending on the demands of what we work in. And obviously the Premier League throws up big fixture demands that change the weekly demands very rapidly. I mean, we could have two games in the space of three days, maybe three games in the space of seven days, depending on what time of the year it is. Uh, and I think monitoring those workloads very closely, using the information that these workload ratios produce, but then obviously taking the practitioner's skill as well, which is also important, it's being able to actually understand the data as well, not just taking a specific ratio. So the, I think the, the AC ratio is even making its way into the kind of public domain with stories from Bournemouth and whatnot, how they've used to bring Jack Wilshire back and all that kind of thing. Yeah. Is it, is it, what's it like communicating that with coaches? Are they kind of taking that on board or is it 
is this still kind of a I mean it seems obviously a simple thing to hopefully a simple thing to try and communicate with the coach but is it been taken on board or do you understand it I mean I think it's the way you put it across I mean how you represent a, a number I mean he's, he's hit a number but there's being confident confident in that number that it's going to actually affect something I mean it's, it's more to say there's, there's, there's data there's objective data but there's also having the the player having confidence in himself and obviously uh, the coach having confidence in the player to perform um, and I think looking at the data, I think it's important to obviously look at the, most of the information relative to that player. Obviously, rather than looking at the data as absolute numbers, it's important to see, well, where does the player play? What does he normally do in relation to his match workload? And how can we express that in a form that the coach can actually understand? So whether that being as in referring to a high-speed running number as a game load value, so in, in week, say, 14, he did 2.5 ga- games worth of high-speed running, but then in week, the next week on, he did 2.6. And then how does, how does that accumulate over time? And try and actually to, to refer it into a manner that the coach can interpret. So I know there was, um, there's been a little bit of chat recently, especially with the UKCA um, this weekend in a, a post that was presented by Adam Hearn looking at um, absolute versus relative. Yeah. So would you, would you always use the... The relative to re- to report your GPS. I mean, in t- terms of the GPS, I'd I'd report it. I'd report it in multiple layers, depending on okay. who you're communicating it to. So, as a sports science staff, um, I think it's important to have actually look at the absolute numbers and have it being able to look specifically and, and delve into the data in a lot more depth. But then, reporting it to a coach, it needs to be really quantifiable in a, in, a, in, a, in a format that the coach can understand. So I think the relative format, and maybe expressing that relative format in some kind of um, exertion scoring system can have, a, can have a, a, an effect over a period of time once the coach can understand that the method that the sports science department wishes to provide to the coaching team. So, so with, that in, with that in mind, if that's what the sports science guys are reporting for themselves, that's the absolute is what is reported to the coaches. But what is reported to the players? What are you What are you guys at Everton telling the players? I mean, in terms in terms of the player, I mean, the data is open for the players to see, and they're encouraged to come and see that. Um, and I think it's 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 important to show that relative to what they would normally do in a game. I mean, interpretation of the of the of the game data. It is a whole new conversation. I mean, I think Chris Carley's done a lot of work in this area, how we interpret game data. And I think, obviously, I think the question mark is, and it still remains out there, depending on what level you work at, is it fitness data or is it workload data? Has that been player, if he's done a certain amount of high-speed running in one game, and then the next game he does less, has he lost fitness? For me, no. no. It's obviously... How is the game stimulus and how is the tactics, how is the scoreline, how is the demands that have been put on the player changed? Is the pacing strategies that the player might employ affected the actual workload? So again, it's important to express that relative then again to each player and what that player normally does in the game where he would play for around 90, obviously 90 minutes, a full duration. And if not, where was he expressed in metres per minute if he was to come on as a substitute? So with all that kind of contextual information out there that needs to be communicated when this data is communicated, how do we actually 
make sense of the the numbers themselves without so much more conversation going on around the contextual part, the score, the the position he's in, the you know the league position of the opposition, all that kind of thing. How do you get that out of the way to actually get something that's that's meaningful to the coach? I think how it can obviously then affect. I mean, obviously the scoreline obviously is the most important thing, and obviously the match result. And I think then what that player's done in the game, and obviously the coach can then have some interpretation of how how the how the match played out to put his own construct on that. I think that's important to obviously get the coach's opinion on that as well. And then obviously how can we then affect the working week going forward after the game and what goes in maybe the following week when we're looking at the Premier League? Because obviously the, the week-to-week schedules change very rapidly. So then it becomes obviously you monitoring workloads to, man, to manage the players. to Obviously for the manager then to be able to select the players he wants to keep them fit. Mm-hmm. So, give an example. So, you've got a game on a Saturday and then you've got a game coming up on the, on the following Saturday. So, you've collected some, some external load data on the, um, on the Saturday, the first Saturday. Mm-hmm. What are you using then and how to actually, mo- to actually modify or not modify, depending on the, the outcome of, the, of what you're seeing, for the following week? I mean, I think in terms of the work when we take the workload data in um, we look at it relative to each player and then obviously we express that normally as a, a Z score so how they changed in relation to specific metrics that we would look at specifically to what we were doing at Everton Football Club maybe, maybe depending on the way we train is different to other clubs obviously um, and then we look at that information and to see what they've done obviously then in the whole training week previously not just the match and then to see what was going to be coming up in the week coming up after that to see how we can affect and obviously if the player is to a player or a sati the example you're given and then obviously maybe an active recovery day on the, the Sunday for those who played and then obviously that normally the the Monday would probably be an off day and then obviously that important day coming in would obviously then be the match day minus four coming up the next week the Tuesday so obviously can we take that workload data say for example a player might have done 50 percent more game load high speed running than they normally do in a position in in their position. Is there any sort of wellness information we can take, readiness information we can take before when that player gets into the building on that uh, uh, Tuesday morning? We can start to make better decisions based off that, based off the match load data. So I think the important thing construct to take from this is that it's not about one piece of data in isolation. It's trying to bring many bits of data together in the most simplest form possible to draw good opinions. And then obviously then you can actually put that information then into practice to affect the training week going forward. Mm-hmm. So just on that, I might as well touch on it while we're there. Um, the, the wellness and, and readiness stuff that you're doing at Everton. Yeah. Can you can you give us a little more detail I mean, on what that what that looks like if you can? Yeah, so, I mean stuff that we've done previously in the last couple of years. Um I think that I'm quite of the sort of simplistic approach that any sort of we'll touch on the readiness testing first needs to be like minimalistic and doesn't really need to affect the uh the training process so that we get good compliance from the players that we can routinely test each week without them being feel like we're being invasive on their privacy. Uh, so, I mean, a couple of years ago, and we still continue to use it, was a, an isometric hamstring test at 1990, uh, which is like a three-second drive down into a, a force platform uh, that we done, and then the, which was quite interesting that showed some, some changes. Obviously, we're looking at peak force and then obviously a rate of force development over three time points uh, in relation to that. And obviously, um, 
this we have some I have some research coming out in the next uh, sort of couple of months that I've been working on with uh, Daniel Cohen, obviously, you know, from Force Dex. That's gonna uh, obviously be quite interesting to come to light when that's that's released. And then um, another one that we've uh, we've been using recently and in the last season or so is using the obviously what most people use was the count movement jump, obviously on the Force Dex again. So just simply just three jumps, hands on hips. And then can we look at any of the neuromuscular measures, like the flight contraction time, and is there any deviation from what that player would normally be on that specific match day type? So obviously we need to look at any take away any variation in that could uh, affect the data pool. Mm-hmm. So what's what's buying from players been on that on that kind of stuff? The the jumping fast deck stuff. I mean, it's been really good actually, because in terms of like take the ISO hams for example, obviously isometric in nature. There's there's pretty much minimum chance of any muscle damage in the test and then obviously it, the, the time duration it takes you're looking at around a maximum of 30 seconds around about 30 seconds to a minute to do the test uh, and then obviously the CMJ the same you're looking at three reps it's asking minimal work program from the players and, and what we what, what is important for us as well obviously it might not that every player would do the, both tests one player might get better compliance doing one test than the other. So it's obviously giving uh, the player choice. Somewhat like there are some of the recovery methodologies that are out there. It's, it's got to be player focused. If, it, if it, You can't force a player to do a, use a certain recovery method if they, if they, they see that as a threat, uh, which potentially raise stress levels. The same with the readiness test. Say they've coming back from a previous injury that might be affected by one of the tests. They might see that as a threat and a challenge, which could then increase stress. So it's obviously having a good relationship with the players to get compliance and the data and pick the test that's appropriate to each player as well, which then we can track over a period of time in relation to the training load and the game load, as I spoke about. So we're going to take a very quick break in the chat with Matt. Hope you enjoyed part one. So coming up in part two, we have a little chat about Franz Bosch. We have a little chat, more of a chat about benchmarking and also uh, Matt's influences uh, elsewhere, not just in the in the industry, but elsewhere as well. So just before we get into the part two, just want to say a big thanks to Forstex for sponsoring this episode today. So I'm pretty sure uh, Matt uses Forstex over Everton uh, and has a good relationship with uh, Dr. Daniel Cohen. So if you do want to find out more about Forstex, I would encourage you to check out episode 139, the Pacey Performance Podcast. Um, as well as the previous episode of the podcast, which is 149, um, who uh, when I talked to like Dr. Daniel Cohen in 139, but also Phil Graham Smith in 149. So plenty of information on there, not only about force decks, but for jump monitoring um, as a whole. So make sure you do uh, jump over there and have a have a listen to them. So big thanks to them, guys. Hope you enjoy part two, um, and I'll speak to you soon. So one thing that I'd written down that I was going to touch on, just moving back a couple of minutes, was that scenario the Saturday to Saturday. Yes. And one thing that's always a one thing that's always a kind of um, thorn in the side for a, for a lot of SNCs and, and sports scientists is those guys that maybe get ten minutes, or the guys that on the bench that don't get anything at all. What's that top up look like for them guys at Everton, and how do you use the the monitoring side of things to make sure that them guys are getting what they need uh, in terms of the monitoring obviously I talked about some uh, an exertion system that we use obviously that tracks each player's relative workload specifically to them 
So we can see how the starting 11 players have been taxing that working week in relation to the players who haven't been playing match minutes. So normally the scenario would be, obviously at the manager's discretion, that some of the players who haven't played may be involved with the uh, 23s game in the upcoming week. Obviously then, which would be ideal for them to get match minutes and to be exposed to that stress that is the game that cannot be achieved during training. Uh, and then obviously other examples would be for the uh, manager's fitness coach to do an additional uh, sort of high-speed running top of exposure after the game or depending if the players are going to be in the next day or not. If then if the players are to be in the next day, there might be a training session which would be a top-up for the players. So it's trying to sort of almost manage those players based on, a, on an exertion scale where can we bring their exertion up to those who've played in, in, in the training week. Obviously, it's a difficult scenario and I, I still don't know, anyone knows the perfect answer to that. Um, without exposing players to competitive match action to give them that match fitness it, it's, a, it's a huge challenge but it's trying to bring that back to a, a sort of a relative form where we, the manager can see how they, how they are compared to those who have been playing in the competitive action over a period of time mm-hmm. So can, can you delve a little bit deeper into what that exertion scale actually is? I mean the exertion Please feel free to say no Yeah we can touch on it a little bit I mean obviously we, like any other clubs, we train very differently. Uh, not every club's the same. Um, not every club needs to monitor the same external workload variables. The exertion system is just, a, just taking the relativity data and then look at it in relation to certain GPS, GPS metrics. Obviously, obviously, we know high-speed running is important to, to monitor. Uh, obviously, all the evidence supporting, obviously, the balance between its exposure can improve obviously physical qualities but then it's, it can also prevent injury so that would be an example looking at that relative there and then taking that with a couple more uh, measures of external workload and, and then obviously relating that back to, to a specific score for each player for a specific session cool hope that gives you enough without giving too much away no that's fine mate that's fine I understand I understand the crack so it's fine mate um so I just want to move on to the return to play stuff that you are getting more and more involved with. Yeah. So is that is that something that you've pushed for? Is that is that a, or is that a um, something a direction the club pushed, or is that just a, an interest of yours? I think it's uh, a little bit of both, really. I think obviously now I've been in football for around ten years, and I've, I've found that sometimes it's maybe sometimes difficult to get across certain things you'd like to do, and obviously I feel like I want to sort of have an effect on things and. Um, well, like to say earning my wage really uh, in, in, in a common way to put it really so it's nice to be able to actually um, delve a little bit deeper I and mean, obviously work with the multidisciplinary team we have at Everton so the physiotherapy and uh, and the other members of the sports science and obviously the sports nutritionists we have and uh, touch on the return to play sort of areas I mean it can throw up some great challenges uh, and obviously it means that I can I can use a remit of my skills to look at the, the obviously the player monitoring, uh, the approach to S and C depending on what type of injury it is, and then over a period of time depending on what injury it is, hopefully return that player to, to obviously to training and then obviously to competition, um, looking at some sort of specific things along the way. So you just want to give us say a I don't know we've talked a lot about hamstrings, so we'll take the hamstring as an example. Say it's eight weeks or something yeah what what does that what does that journey look like for that player what have they what stages are there within them eight ten weeks that you would like kind of non-negotiables yeah. along the way yeah I think um, obviously first of all obviously 
after the player's injured, he would remain with the physiotherapy team for a period of time until obviously the injury settles. And then the sort of the first port of call for us was obviously would have been obviously is is he pain is he pain free? On sort of we've got processed through some isometric contractions. Normally, depending on what the site is, type of injury, whether it be a bicep femoris or a semi-mem, semi-tendinosis sort of injury, uh, would de- de- determine what uh, degree angle we would uh, target the um, isometrics at. And obviously, these are normally done in sort of uh, cluster sets. So it's a targeting of sort of a sort of starting with a submaximal contraction, working more towards a maximal voluntary contraction. Sort of a cluster between anything starting from 10 seconds going down to five seconds depending on the intensity of effort and obviously just building up some sort of time and attention and obviously obviously with isometrics being minimally um exposing the player to eccentric uh, tissue stress and muscle damage then obviously it can build over time and then it's starting to obviously integrate some more sort of bridging based movements floor based movements and then obviously working on different um, athletic compasses while you're focused on the injury it's important not just to focus on the injury in my opinion can we look at developing some athletic compasses and qualities in that player outside of what the injury is so can we look at the components of core stability can we look at developing some anti-extension uh, ability resisting rotation in different positions can, can we work on different qualities at the same time and then obviously, obviously as the period goes on We'd, we'd, generally what we try and do is then use the ISO hams test that I talked about earlier as sort of a, a sort of a tracker is it when is it right and when is it appropriate to start to uh, expose that player to certain speeds in on the GPS on the external workload um, so obviously do, are they returning to their previous baselines obviously objective data is important in return to play are they returning to the objective baselines in terms of when they re- uh, return to peak force on the ISO hams, and normally what we start to see is that after they quite quickly return to peak force, maybe in around 10 to 14 days after injury, and then the, the last things that start to uh, recover are the um, sort of rate of force development kinetics. So the, the sort of the time frame, look at 150 milliseconds, sort of the last things are starting to return in there, maybe after about uh three weeks period when obviously you can sort of um take that outside rehabilitation onto the next step obviously the outdoor and the indoor preparation working in tandem so progressing those players towards initially towards more strain based exercises so depending to say it was a proximal hamstring strain more rdls single rdls where it be a, a more distal component it may be obviously everyone talks about the nordic obviously for me i'm not a big lover of the nordic i think I think the Norboard is a great tool for monitoring, obviously, eccentric hamstring strength, but I think sometimes if using the Nordic, we fail to get to those long muscle lengths where we were looking for a sort of structural change. Uh, and I think, obviously, a rip paper um, on exercise technique in the uh, NSCA strength and conditioning journal on the side and leg pull, which I'm a big proponent of. So you've put, you've put quite a bit on... Um... I suppose I think you've done it for a bit actually. Last uh, maybe six months ago, yeah. On a, obviously, um, some influences that you have moving towards the kind of Franz Bosch yeah. style exercises. Yeah. You just want to talk to us a little bit, yeah, kind of your journey using them kind of things and yeah, I and, think and why why you would use them and maybe some examples. Yeah, I think it's important. I think I think there's obviously a balance. I mean, some of the evidence that's coming out between is it a. Uh, Change in the muscle tendon. Is it is it is it a contractual element or is it a serious 
elastic components sort of change in terms of muscle contraction. And I think obviously Franz is taking a, in terms of this dynamic systems theory probably like movements consist of robust invariant components and with high levels of stability and low levels of stability that fluctuate. And I think obviously taking that into account, I think it has a place and time, but it's what people fail, maybe fail to think about with some of Franz's work is that you have to get people, um, athletes, sorry, moving competently. They have to be able to do these base competency movements before they can progress to this high level work. Um, a great example might be sort of one of Franz's exercises being a, a split squat with a forward lean. I mean, can your player do a split squat body weight first of all it's like progression to that and then obviously it's important I mean when we look at in terms of if the if take an injury example for instance if there's a, a tendinous involvement where there seems to be a, like a significant portion of hamstring strains now involve the tendon is Franz approach enough to get enough strain through the, the actual tissue to cause stress to cause the tendon to adapt over time um that's up for debate, I suppose, within the... Uh, but I think obviously important for me during the end stages of strength preparation, especially for high-speed running, like, it's really important to include some of these multi-joint exercises across the hip and knee joints, like, so, which have a high degree of sort of pelvic control and cooperation. I mean, it's the, en- the energy transport is it re- it's really important. Mm-hmm. So on that return to play, return to performance process, do you have any specific benchmarks that players have to hit before they can progress to the next stage? Whether it's a, are they different? Is it different depending on the time frame or? Yeah, I think uh, I think it's different on depending on the time frame. Obviously, we talked about we use the ISO hammers in the early stages. Are yeah. they returning to peak force and then obviously the rate of force development? And I think obviously the null board is a great tool for monitoring eccentric strength. Obviously, we have the players; they have the baselines at the start of the season, so that's important. Is there, is there a risk of asymmetry there? So I think it's important to target if there is an, the exercises that do target that asymmetry, you need to put more uh, stress and strain throughout those tissues for, in order them for the, to adapt to the um, stimulus. Um, and then obviously, uh, also we need to look at obviously the GPS data of that player. Are we returning that player not only to, well, they can do one session, they can do a certain amount or they've done 90% of game load high speed running they've done over 90% high speed maximal speed efforts they've done two or three efforts within that, those high velocity bands but are they doing it I think this relates then to the monitoring over week to week are they doing that over a time period it needs to be consistent are they training four times in the week are they hitting the same markers that they would hit within a normal training week so it's not just like yeah he's ticked a couple of boxes he's, he's achieved high speed running He's achieved it in the presence of chaos rather than controlling straight lines. He's done it in reaction to movement of the ball in movement of players. I think it's also important to consider these variables when we're returning players. High-speed running in reality is fine box-to-box, but does it look like is that, does that look like what a player does in a game? Is high-speed running in straight lines? Is it response to a, a person shouting go? Invitatively, in, in no, it's not. So how much how much of a psychological aspect is there in this whole return to play process, and how does how do you and, and the other performance staff and physios kind of deal with that, especially longer term long term? Yeah, I think it's trying to be positive, remain positive with the player at all times, and to try and uh, obviously. 
obviously I think the modern player is getting more intelligent in nature and they want to understand the reasoning and the rationale for why you're for doing exercise and why they're doing a particular rehab session so it's obviously being able to explain to them in the format well why are we doing this today uh, and what is the progression for this and obviously then the objective data will actually serve a purpose so you, you are improving your, your, your normal scores are improving left to right um, and, I, and I think that's important and then obviously Touching that, does, does the player then have confidence in his own ability? Not just to obviously, he's, he's achieved in a sort of metabolic and he's achieved in a fatigue resistance, high intensity workload, but also that is he confident in his technical actions when he's, when he's going back in after he's been for eight, for eight to ten weeks a period of time? It's all right to look at the workload data, but we also need to consider things we may not be able to measure as well. We, we currently cannot measure the number of ball striking actions in a game, for example. And, th and this is one thing that we talked about beforehand and especially on the psychological aspect and not only the player but the coach is like you're in charge of getting this player back who is potentially worth well god knows how how much going on what this summer's kind of thrown up yes worry but you're in charge of getting <laughs> yeah, <it's crazy. laughs> but get, getting these players back to be a £50,000 a week, £60,000 a week, £80,000 a week player. That's quite a uh, responsibility for, for for anyone to get these players back. Um, and there's a high expectation from that. There's probably a higher expectation from that player, given their kind of status, that the person they're working with is the best that could potentially be found. Yeah. That's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a big thing for you guys. Yeah, it's a big to, pressure. To, uh, I think it's obviously... Um, yeah. As you work and you develop your rationale for working, and um, obviously you, you continue to develop that, you, you don't stop. You continue to work, continue to look at CPD. You continue to do research to people, to continue to speak to people within the industry in terms of what's best practice. How can I move forward myself? And I think that's important. Because I think time just stands still, and you have to move move forward quick as you can and look to um, develop yourself and your practices. Because obviously you're going to be challenged with returning these players not just the training, but to competitive action where the demands of the Premier League are going up and up and up. Um, and I think, obviously, as the player goes back into training, it's important then to to interact with the coaching staff in terms of where he's at. I mean, is it? I think the gradual introduction back into training and doing elements of training, especially in long terms, is important, where the player may join in with elements of training. So he may join in with the warm-up with the group, he may join in with the some of the pass and move drills, and then he may come out for a period of time to do specific conditioning with maybe the, the rehabilitation coach uh, before he gradually returns to play and obviously goes back into the more chaotic environments that is is, is the nature that football brings up, unfortunately. So talking about uh, looking kind of outside and, and keeping your kind of CPD up to date and things who, who, are the, who are the influences who are your influences at this moment in time who are you, you looking I mean, to educate yourself I think we've um, we mentioned obviously we talked about Franz Bosch that uh, some of his work that I'm a I'm a big lover of and uh, obviously others that I've looked at I mean recently I've been over to Boston to do Eric Cressy's elite uh, baseball men's shit the lower body part okay. uh, I went over to New, New Jersey a couple of years uh, ago to do the uh, DeFranco's CPBS certification uh, and also recently uh, lucky enough to do Spiner's uh, functional range conditioning mobility specialist uh, certification so just looking at them maybe looking outside the box can that common people will look to do whether it be some of the UKSC, UKSC 
the A courses in this country. Maybe just looking out the box, really, what can other sports offer offer our world, mm-hmm. rather than looking at, at the same thing. Mm-hmm. Nice. So, what was Eric Cressy's like, just out of interest? Yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, the, the I mean, the course was really development of power outside the sagittal plane. So it's really more a lot of. Uh, transverse sort of rotation or anything a lot of the medicine ball work uh, especially sort of the component that brings I mean some of the rapid triple extension you can get with some of say going up for a med ball slam and coming back down I think is maybe a great way of getting some of that kind of exposure that sort of velocity work into obviously football players where sometimes we don't have the time uh, and the contact time and the hours to teach some of the Olympic lift variations so I think that some of the work that offers and some of the speed of velocities that some of the conditioning components can be um, trained with our players. I think it offers a lot. Nice. Well, just coming to an end, and I'd just like to uh, to round up a little bit. But where where can where can people get in touch with you, Matt? And where can people keep up to date with what you've got going on? Uh, well, I think uh, obviously you know I'm obviously on uh, I'm on Twitter, uh, so. Contact me there via my email address, and then uh, obviously uh, still working for Everton for a period of time. Nice. So, um, cool. Happy days. See what the future. No, yeah. sound, mate. It's good to talk to you, Rob. Yeah, it's oh, good. good. Well, really appreciate your time, mate. And um, I'm going to let you go and get on with your evening. Watch a bit of the athletics. Um, yeah, I look forward to it. Change of scenery for a change, rather than working with the. Lads. absolutely it's been class but anyway yeah I'll let you go um, but really appreciate your, uh, your your 40 minutes of your time uh, this evening so uh, no we'll, we'll speak soon yeah nice one Rob alright cheers pal cheers pal see ya bye bye thanks for tuning in to episode 150 of the Pacey Performance Podcast I hope you enjoyed the chat with Matt firstly a big thanks to Matt for giving up his time to have a little chat for the uh, for the podcast I know he's a busy guy um, a second thank you to uh, Forstex Val Performance and Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. So always up for receiving some feedback, whether it be positive or, positive or negative. Uh, always welcome, so please feel free to direct message me on Twitter, email me, uh, whatever it may be. So looking to bring some more great guests uh, over the next couple of weeks, so make sure you keep tuned in uh, and let me know what you think. Um, thanks again, and I will speak to you soon.